2: next picture show listeners here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the next picture show you'll really enjoy getting more next picture show by subscribing to our patreon you can get our weekly newsletter for three dollars a month and unlock bonus episodes for five dollars a month you also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast we recently released a bonus episode on ted lasso and recorded another on the new series why the last man to subscribe to our patreon please visit patreon.com slash next picture show we're breaking format a bit this week to deal with a couple of related issues raised by our recent pairing of Eternal Sunshine and The Spotless Mind and Reminiscence. We like the way those episodes turned out, and we hope you do too, but Eternal Sunshine wasn't our first choice for the pairing. it as we do, we originally wanted to compare Reminiscence to Catherine Bigelow's 1995 film Strange Days, another noir-influenced crime thriller set in a then-near future concerning the intersection between memory and technology. The only problem? That film has all but disappeared. Which got us thinking, we live in a moment when seemingly every movie is just a click away, and yet it only takes trying to find one movie that's not available to realize that just isn't the case. In the past 40 years, home video has gone through eras dominated by, in turn, VHS, DVD, and streaming services, with considerable overlap between each era and the emergence of Blu-rays and 4K as a superior disc format, more or less coinciding with the ascent of streaming. But with each edition, there's also been losses. So inspired by Strange Days, we'll also discuss the current state of film availability and whether or not we're kidding ourselves if we think we've never had it better. Guys, I've been doing all the talking. Do you want to add anything?
0: Keith, I just have one question for you. Are you ready to get jacked in?
2: Yes, I am. We'll commence the jacking in after the break.
1: Have you ever jacked in? Have you ever wire tripped? You ready?
0: Oh, 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 oh. This is not like TV only better. This is life. It's a piece of somebody's life. It's about the stuff that you can't have, right? The forbidden fruit. Straight from the cerebral cortex. I mean, you're there, you're doing it, you're feeling it.
1: Are you beginning to see the possibilities here?
2: Not everyone hated Catherine Bigelow's 1995 film Strange Days at the time, but those who hated it really hated it. Ahead of its release, Joe Myers, writing for the Thompson News Service, sent a dispatch from the film's press junket that described a scene at odds with the usually fluffy nature of such events. He cited two anonymous critics he described as the sort who, quote, frequently contribute effusive quotes to movie advertisements, unquote, offering the same five-word assessment. And I'm going to quote again, it's a piece of shit, unquote. In the Q and A, reporters took objection to Bigelow's depiction of a crime-ridden Los Angeles of five years in the future, and asked how a woman could direct such a violent film. Bigelow came ready for that last question, saying, "I think that ghettoizes women. There's nothing more horrendous to me than the idea that women make one kind of movie and men make another." Asked about her influences, she was quick to name Sam Peckinpah and Walter Hill. Why should someone with roots like those be expected to direct a Jane Austen adaptation? Still, while some critics embraced the film, Roger Ebert gave it four stars, for instance, it picked up a lot of mixed reviews and the public rejected it. The film lost money and stalled out Bigelow's career for a while. Strange Days disappeared after that, but it was never quite forgotten, particularly after Bigelow returned to the spotlight in the aughts, renewing interest in her old films, which now looked like a body of work consistently concerned with the themes of power, violence, and obsession. Yet those who wanted to revisit Strange Days had their work cut out for them, either relying on a long out-of-print DVD, importing a German Blu-ray and acquiring a region-free player, hoping it would pop up on cable, or looking mm, elsewhere for ways to watch it. Those who did found a film that looked like both a time capsule and a prophecy. Ray Fine stars as Lenny Nero, a disgraced LA cop who, in the days before 1999 turns over to 2000, makes his living trading black market squid recordings, a technological innovation that allows users to share others' life experiences. It is, unsurprisingly, a much-abused medium. Lenny sells clips of thrill-seeking, but also sex and crime, and if you want them, couples arguing. Even his at first seemingly benign application, revisiting moments with his ex-girlfriend Faith, played by Juliette Lewis, feels creepy. Is it a violation to relive having sex with a woman who doesn't want you anymore? Lenny doesn't have much time to think about these questions, however, when he's dragged into a tale of crime and cover-up involving corrupt cops, the murder of an influential political rap star, and a city on the verge of exploding into violence at all times. Drawing his professional driver friend Mace, played by Angela Bassett, into the mess and the process. Though its origins date back to ideas developed by Bigelow and James Cameron in the 1980s with finishing touches from screenwriter Jay Cox, it's an extremely 90s vision of millennial chaos, assembled from bits of William Gibson's stories, the cyberpunk fashion trend they helped inspire, and implications of the Rodney King trial, with bits of Philip K. Dick and Michael Powell's Peeping Tom thrown in as well. But it's also a movie that looks forward to what was to come, The primacy of technology in everyday lives, the blurring of reality in online life, violent video games, virtual reality, you name it. But is it any good? We tracked it down and checked it out, and we'll discuss it after the break.
0: This is your life, right here, right now. It's real time. You hear me? Real time. Time to get real, not playback. You understand? She doesn't love you anymore. Maybe she did once, I don't know, but she does not now. These are used emotions. It's time to trade them in. Memories were meant to fade, Lenny. They're designed that way for a reason. All right, so
2: we've all rewatched, I think we all saw it before, Strange Days. What did you think of it watching this vision of the year 2000 and the year 2021?
0: I honestly think if this movie came out today... I'm not going to say it's going to, it would be blockbuster hit because reminiscence is such a copycat of it. And that movie seems to have sunk, but I think it would be received differently and and interpreted differently. And for the time that it came out in, I mean, it doesn't look all that different from a, a 2021 movie in a lot of ways. There's certainly some aspects of it that feel like I'm not going to say dated, like even in the way that uh, Keith likes or really even in the way that Keith doesn't like, like, either as a pejorative or just as a Figure of its time, it just doesn't look that dated to me. You know, it's it's so stuck in in both realism and futurism in just kind of believable ways, and it's so forward thinking that it's still really correct about the effects of violent policing and about uh, systematic bureaucratic corruption and just a whole lot of other stuff about how people use technology and how people get along. So, like revisiting it today just feels like watching a 2021 movie today in some ways and then finding out some of the the aspects of how it had to be made because it was made 25 years ago kind of blew my mind. But I'm maybe skipping past the lead here which is a Strange Days is one of my favorite movies of all time, just flat out. And every time I come back to it, I see new things. Every time I think about the construction of it, I'm impressed all over again. And on this particular rewatch, I just sat there with my husband saying, that is so perfect. What a great innovation that is. How impressive that they, they handled this that way just throughout the whole movie. It's just so freaking good.
2: Yeah, let's talk about the construction because I, I don't necessarily see that aspect of it. To me, it's, it places kind of disjointed. I'm sure you can you can talk me into it. I think it's a movie that I, I ultimately I'm going to enjoy talking about more than watching it in some ways. But it's not a movie that I think I'm sure it's a movie I underestimated at the time, and and I found it revisiting it a pretty pretty powerful experience. And in, in a lot of ways, I'd forgotten how shockingly violent some of the scenes are. And in a way, because I think and sometimes we just don't get. It, it, was, it was shockingly violent at the time, but mm-hmm. it kind of felt like at the next notch up from what you might get in an R-rated movie that you don't really – well, because everything's PG-13 now, you don't really get that at all. But but even the R-rated movies don't go to places that this movie goes. Uh, no, it's it's a fascinating film, so I'm really looking forward to digging into it. Scott, what about you?
1: Yeah, so I hadn't seen it since 1995. Um, and, and I remember certainly appreciating it and being intrigued by it and finding it something to talk about for sure it was really i think you put it well in your keynote as it being both time a time capsule and kind of prescient but at the same time it's like i think the film would be too shocking for people today weirdly enough like it Mm is somehow the notion of like somebody experiencing themselves being raped and murdered like the depiction of that in a studio film seems like so far beyond what is possible now in a way that kind of is was exciting to watch, believe it or not. It's perverse. I mean, I don't like, obviously it's a disturbing scene, but it was exciting that something that disturbing could be in a movie of this scale and this ambition from a major studio. So I appreciated that part of it. That's and it, God, and it got you have more
0: all. violence. You, you hate on screen violence, <laughs> especially of the uh, excre- extreme and shocking variety.
1: Yeah. It, surprisingly, I liked it here. The other thing that struck me though, is I couldn't help but reflect about our conversation about Bigelow's Detroit, because I feel like the thing they have in common is is that Bigelow is really good at experiential, visceral cinema. So you think about the reaction to Detroit, uh, particularly from our friend Angelico, who really detested it. And I think you know the d- difference ends up being one is based on actual historical events and feels like historical events, of the ride kind of, and this is its own kind of original story with references to things that were happening in the culture and it feels like it's ends up being more permissible to make a movie like that than it is to make a movie like detroit but from bigelow's end the technique is the same i mean i Mm. think she's she's really trying to hit you as hard as she can with this stuff and shake you up and that film the film certainly did that for me i was really disturbed and riveted by it start to finish
2: you know, you brought up Bigelow's career and we should talk about where this fell in her career at the time. And, you know, I kind of alluded to in the keynote leading into this, there's, there's, uh, you know, if you research profiles of her at the time, it is, you know, the, the, the sexism that Let's we'll just say it's more overt than, than, it, than it than it is now. I mean, there's one profile I've heard that that alluded to another profile of Vogue, or, which recalled Bigelow as looking like the world's most expensive dominatrix. Which is not. I mean, imagine starting, you know, a profile of of anyone that that way. It's 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 uh you know it kind of shows you where where the where the level was at there as well. But there was multiple. There were multiple. I encountered multiple complaints about how could a woman do this. It's just un, un, so unseemly that a film, this violent CD would come from a, a female director. And I think at least publicly, we've moved past that, that part of the conversation. By the time, you know, this was, you know, it really felt like she had to, to fight for every inch that she had and and you know directing action films as well it was this is on the heels of on the heels of of near dark which 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 is amazing uh blue steel which is a movie i need to see i've never gotten to
1: that one it's an interesting movie yeah thematically rich and and uh yeah it's it's flawed but very much worth your time
2: yeah and and point break which is a movie i definitely underestimated at
1: the time oh yeah
0: I haven't seen uh, Blue Steel either, but I, I'm I'm just I'm reeling a little bit at the idea of critics who had seen Near Dark coming <laughs> to Strange Days and, and being appalled by a woman directing violence. I mean, that's it's a very violent film and it's a very visceral film. It's a very lived in or unlived in film since it uh, involves vampires, you know, but it's raw and it's kind of like action driven and, and violence driven. You know it's not a jane austen adaptation as you alluded to earlier like it's a very distinctive calling card of somebody with a interest in breaking down and remaking really familiar types of cinema uh, why, why would strange days be a surprise i guess is what i'm one of the things i'm wondering
1: to me it, it's it's just has to do with a matter of scale I mean Near Dark is a beloved cult item it's a you know independent film it's very it's a small film it's something that you know you don't you, you're not taking out to you know thousands of theaters like like Strange Days Strange Days is a big studio production so I think that plays a part and the other part of it is is that this is a commentary on uh, on the future, on the near future, on America, and, and uh, our instinct for violence and sex and drugs to a degree, and, and just a very despairing understanding of where the culture is heading. I think it's a, it's just a, kind of on another level, I think, than those earlier films. And I also feel like if you knew those films, you were a cinephile <laughs> more than you were just a member of the general public.
0: Sure, but we're talking to some degree about the, the film critic reaction. Like the idea of critics reacting publicly with a woman shouldn't be allowed to direct this kind of thing. Like, how dare she is just so bemusing to me. Just so appalling, I guess. I'm wondering like where these cinephiles who were reviewing movies were. When other female directors were uh, were producing things, it's just it's such a strange thing to say, I think, let alone to be like a theme in the zeitgeist that would help torpedo her career.
1: I would say, though, that the examples that Keith cited were from the types of critics who would be. Appalled in a way because they're not being given what they expect to get see at a junket. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, the, the, you know, and then Roger Ebert gives a four stars. I think that I think there might be something to be said about <laughs> a movie that just defies your expectations. The, the, movies that defy expectations are not films that are going to play well at junkets.
0: Lord love him. I mean, I, Roger Ebert certainly loved to have his expectations defied, but he also definitely had a soft spot for anything graphically sexual or violent. I I just I remember like when I was a uh, a young critic watching movies and then and reading his reviews how often uh we would run across something like his Blue Velvet review, review saying that the it wasn't sexual or violent enough, or uh, Nine and a Half Weeks is a movie that he kind of slobbered over in a way I thought was a little unseemly. I'm not surprised that he loved this. I mean, you know, it's it's barrier breaking and and surprising, and the story is great, but it's it's also like a good movie for you know good old pervy uh, Roger Ebert side. Well, to provide a bit of context, it opened in
2: one theater, I believe, on, on the 6th of October, but its proper opening was the 13th. It debuted at number eight. But in terms of unsavory content, the number one movie that week and and for, f- I think, four weeks in a row was seven. The number five movie that week, was also um, a financial flop, but also provides a little bit of context as to what people were, were watching, was Jade, which was is uh, oh, in God. many ways a, a, as nasty a film as this, but not nearly as, as smart. Trace J's debuted effectively at number eight, behind To Die For in its third week and ahead of The Big Green in its third week. It was it was not successful. Um, so I'm kind of wondering why, I guess a good point of comparison here is why would people go s- feel comfortable going to see Seven, but not this?
1: Huh.
0: I am honestly baffled by that question. I would I... say
1: that people had been weaned a bit on serial killer movies. I mean, it, it, you know, I think you know Silence of the Lambs had had already happened; or had already been sure. a, a massive cultural phenomenon. And, and Brad Pitt was is a
2: bigger star bad, than, a, than Brad Pitt was
1: a, a very without quite by leagues at that point bigger star. Um, so those those two factors alone are pretty significant. And there is kind of a pulpy feel to seven. I, I mean, I think there's, there's a, there is kind of a sense that Fincher and company are trying to give us a, a bleak vision of, of a modern rain drenched urban landscape. But like, but I think there's something more real about the future that strange days is trying to predict, you know, the chaos that we are all kind of feeling might be coming as the millennium turned. I mean, I think there's something weirdly, even, even though it's not a more disturbing film, than seven, there's elements of it that feel more real and maybe a little bit more disturbing on that in that sense.
2: Yeah, I remember thinking it was kind of funny at the time that it would, you know, this all this is going to happen in the next five years. But I think it actually ultimately kind of works where obviously this is not the future we got, but it is so close to the, the 1995-ish version of America that it feels, uh, you know, like a sharper critique because of that.
0: This is going out on a limb a little bit, but I can't help but wonder if part of that dichotomy is that Seven is in a way a kind of, there is a kind of like overlay of misogyny to it. You know, the I'm thinking about things from... The, the big detail of how it ends to smaller things like a woman getting <laughs> knife raped to death, which I mean, if you're horrified by the rape and murder in strange days, I don't know how you can let the knife raping in uh, seven go by. They seem about, you know, equal in terms of, of broad horror to me, but seven ultimately is is a story about men, is a story about men pursuing men. And it's kind of a like a masculine, you know, machismo based movie that doesn't have a ton of use. I mean, it's misanthropic as well as uh, as mis- misogynistic. I'm not condemning the movie. I, I think it's a really mesmerizing and, and well-made and strong movie. But I think the people who were used to that in their culture and who had some kind of like back of brain feeling that women could only make certain kind of films might have been made uncomfortable by the degree to which strange days doesn't have that element, I think, nearly as much. I mean, it it is very obsessed in a way with with women's bodies and with the literal male gaze. You know, putting a camera like on the eyes of a man who's obsessed with a woman and using it to show like how he sees her body really literalizes the male gaze in an interesting way. But overall, the movie is is kind of condemning. I mean, Ray Fine's character is kind of pathetic. Uh, in the way he just continues to perpetually chase this broken relationship and this woman who has all the power in it and who keeps pushing him away. It ultimately kind of portrays him as, as sad and broken. And most of the strength in this movie comes from the women in it you know from Juliet Lewis's singer character who has a great deal of power over all the men in her life much of which you can't understand the degree to which it's that's true until the end of the movie and Angela Bassett as the bodyguard/driver who's you know very clearly the action hero and and ass kicker of the piece i kind of wonder if some of the men who watched this movie in 1995 were seeing something that was Operating below the surface on some level that they couldn't necessarily articulate, but that they recognized on some level is implicating them, implicating them as men and implicating them as as white people, given that, you know, back in the 90s, virtually all like professionally published film critics were white men. And they they might have felt that this movie was on both a subtle level and a less subtle level, like kind of a shot at them and they might have felt uncomfortable with it.
2: Yeah, I think the way this film handles sex is, is really smart and uncomfortable because you get that early scene of Juliet Lewis's character, the nudity there. And like, I think Bigelow rightly assumes that a portion of the audience wants to see the nudity, but it holds on it for so long. It becomes kind of uncomfortable. It's, it's like, this is, this is, it really makes you feel like you are you're trapped in that voyeuristic moment too long. And I think you're right. You're you're kind of a little too implicated in that as well. But also the scene characters experiencing the squid tapes from the outside, particularly like moments of sexual pleasure, both finds this character and the would-be client who gets the sample of being an 18 year old, taking a shower or whatever. They look so undignified. Their pleasure is, is so, Undignified it, and and you know it leaves him so vulnerable in that moment. I I think those are just really smart and interesting touches uh, to what she's doing there.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, I imagine that. People who have watched pornography, you know, for its intended purpose might be a little uncomfortable, like watching, this is what you look like. You know, it's, it's so clearly a metaphor, uh, for pornography. I mean, it's, some of it is actually pornography and having that kind of outside view of, You know, this uh, sex looks ridiculous from the outside. Like, let's, let's just be kind of frank about that. Watching somebody experience that pleasure without somebody else there, you know, having it basically be a masturbatory experience, if not literally, then, then certainly mentally and metaphorically kind of feels like it may be like mocking the act of masturbation, like turning masturbation into a voyeuristic act for the audience, but like taking any actual physical pleasure for the audience out of it it's it's really subversive it's really complicated and i love it
1: but i think there's something interesting there that plays with your mind and i guess i should credit brainstorm for getting there first i don't know if anyone remembers that uh, particular christopher walken film
0: we talked about brainstorm a little bit on our last pairing you were you were kind of delighted that i'd seen it i yeah. have since looked it up and it is actually available for streaming if people want to catch I'll up be on damned.
2: it it's a big one i haven't seen and i when the music box says there's 70 millimeter film festival, they, they often show brainstorm kind of waiting for a chance to see it in 70 millimeter.
0: Oh, that would be Im- wild. I can't
1: imagine how that holds up. But in any case, that is an extraordinarily powerful thing to think about. And I think you, you also see it a little bit in being John Malkovich uh, as well. of Just the idea of being in someone else's skin and having some sort of Experience, you know. I mean, it doesn't even have to be, you know. I mean, being John Malkovich was interesting because that experience could be absolutely mundane, but the fact that you're just in somebody's body alone to make it addicting. And and here, of course, these are recordings of particularly vivid, you know, sometimes erotic, sometimes violent, sometimes both kind of moments that that have been captured on the Squid Machine and. Um, I don't know. It's fascinating to kind of think about that, how that might feel, and it's almost surprising that. And I'm not going to say anything more than that. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's it's interesting to think about how that how that feels and how uh, and how we feel as spectators witnessing all of that. I, I think the movie's got a lot of layers to it. It's, it's much. I think you know. It's, it, it, I think Bigelow is a, is a very visceral filmmaker. Uh, you, you see that here. You see it all the way through. Zero Dark Thirty and and, and Detroit and uh, these other films and The Herd Locker. I mean, she's very good at giving you that visceral punch. But here, of course, you, you get to reflect on the morality of it. You kind of have to confront the fact that you are getting you're, through this visceral experience. You're confronting the the, the nature of visceral experiences. Experiences and the ethics of visceral experiences, and often in an extremely disturbing and non-stimulating and non-erotic fashion, or at least not stimulating and non-erotic in the ways that that the squid dealers might, you know, expect it to be.
2: Oh, one of the best jokes in being John Malkovich is what was he doing? Like ordering towels? Was it, <laughs> it was like some <laughs> experience? But like I remember thinking at the time that I was thinking I wouldn't really want to experience robbing a restaurant and running across a rooftop or whatever. But I think I was kind of thinking too literally. I mean, it is very much why you show up at action movies. And I think, it, whether they knew it or not, I think, I think Bigelow and Cameron were onto something about where video games were going uh, in, in a couple of years as well. So, yeah, it is, it is kind of challenging you to examine why you want to watch such transgressive behavior in the first place.
0: And not just the transgressive behavior itself, but that first clip ends with the the death of the person who is uh, participating in the recording and the dealer who's trying to sell it to Ray Fine's character is definitely promoting that as a, a selling point. I mean, he's expressly talking about the voyeuristic pleasure of experiencing somebody die. Which, you know, again, is just a very cinematic thing that, you know, we perpetually have to kind of interrogate, like, why are the movies so casual about death? Why is it so, you know, beloved to watch John Wick? Kill like fifty people like they're nothing. You know why do we enjoy these spectacles? And is that a good thing inherently? Is it a bad thing? The film, I think, by kind of taking a, a hardline hero stance against what they call uh, like blackjack tapes, where where people do experience death, I think that's a reasonable moral choice for somebody to make. I think if this technology existed, like people would seek out those tapes exactly uh, the yes. same way. They seek out, you know, the the most extreme elements of pornography. There's just a feeling of this is transgressive. This is forbidden. Therefore, this is exciting. Like, how far can I go? How far can I push this?
1: Well, it's funny to me that like in a technology that exists already in the black market it could draw any lines whatsoever. right? I mean, just like mm-hmm. it already is something that gets pushed and pushed like drugs. You're going to say that one type of drug is not going to be is off limits. Of course, it's not going to hold up.
0: But I mean, people draw those lines all the time. You know, there are people who still, given that it's not legal everywhere, will deal marijuana, but will draw the line against dealing heroin. Sure. You know, sure. uh, people draw those kinds of lines for themselves, regardless of the morality of legality of what they're doing all the time. Like, you know, on practically everybody who drives speeds, but uh, I don't know. What's the what's the commercial? You wouldn't steal a car, so you shouldn't steal the movie. You know the anti-piracy yeah. thing that everybody makes fun of.
1: People sometimes go and they they download films from the mid '90s that aren't available, and then they and then they watch them at home like a like a bunch of criminals.
0: And see, there's another place <laughs> you might draw that moral line in a in something that's already technically illegal. Like, right, everybody here is a bit uncomfortable with the idea of piracy and and stealing from creators, but that moral line starts to get really fuzzy when you're talking about a movie that is just not legally available in any right. form.
1: I think with this film, too, the more we are talking about it, it feels like a massive missing link. Right? Yeah. I mean, like, like, just like such an a, extremely important film about where technology was going at the time, about where movies were going.
0: But also where, like, confrontational movies about about race and inequality in America yeah. were coming from. I mean, I look at this movie and I see so many fragments of In movies that are being made even today and being called like groundbreaking and and dangerous and confrontational, like Catherine Bigelow was doing this twenty five years ago.
1: And and what amazes me just about Bigelow in general is just the the absolute fearlessness with which she goes about her business. I mean, you could talk about Detroit as being an example of where that goes awry, but there's like no, there's she doesn't go at things that like at fifty percent. You know, she she holds nothing back. I mean, there's like there's there you know, Strange Days is a film. Whether you like it or not, you're going to have a strong reaction to it. You're going to have a strong reaction to The Hurt Locker. You're going to have a really strong reaction to Zero Dark Thirty to Detroit. I mean, she has that kind of just go for broke quality as a filmmaker that um, it is really exciting. You know, at least you, you know you, you know that you're going to react strongly to her films. You, you just n- n- don't necessarily know wh- what direction that's going to end up being.
0: Even leaving aside all of the, like, societal and cultural complexities, the, the, you know, the metaphorical and and subtextual complexities of this movie, uh, which just pile up and pile up and pile up, I I feel like we keep falling down these little micro rabbit holes trying to talk about it, because there's just so much to talk about. But, like, even leaving behind all of the story aspects in the way this is daring... I did not pirate this movie. I have uh, an old out-of-print DVD of it. And on that DVD, there isn't a director's commentary, but there is a recording of some kind of they don't go into detail, but it's some kind of seminar or lecture that Bigelow was giving about the first that six minute uh, first person POV store robbery intro. She's explaining how she does it. Occasionally, uh, she you can hear the audience laughing in the background. I would love to know where that's from. But as she kind of walks through what was necessary to do that Sequence in 1995, like we absolutely take uh, long form winners for granted these days, and you know we take people with cameras strapped to their body going anywhere they they want for granted these days. But to do that back in 1995, she had to invent a new camera. She walks through what was necessary to get those opening shots of somebody sitting in the back seat of the car with with the camera basically being his POV. And it basically involved like five men stacked on top of each other, one, you know, handling the focus pulling and one handling the camera, one being the body and one of the hands. But like one of her camera people is is the guy's other hand that you're seeing on screen when he's manipulating things. Half that car had to be cut away to make room for all of the crew people trying to wrangle the camera in that just that one particular moment. Even before the guy gets out of the car, so as she's explaining all of this again, you just you get that like confidence of vision. Like she knew exactly what she wanted, and she was so clear on it that she was willing to go to ridiculous lengths to get it. And then she produced something that today looks old hat, but twenty five years ago, like it literally took a village to get this one shot.
2: I watched this movie via Squid, so. Um- <laughs>
0: I would not want to experience this movie in <laughs> this my cerebral rule. cortex. There's I, I think one thing
2: it made me maybe because she was everywhere for a while, but did did we undervalue Julia Lewis? Because I think she's really quite good in this movie, but I feel like it kind of a, arrived at a point where she was uh in every movie, uh and and always kind of kind of kind of a, a very uh forceful presence all of them you know and and something like natural natural born killers it could be wearying but
1: um i I mean there was just a flame it was like this you know better to burn out than to fade away type of thing for her she was just this very hot flame uh yeah she was the the jude law of the late 90s i don't think what what happened it was like the last thing i remember her being kind of a really big part of was i mean she did a lot of stuff but like i remember her very vividly in in husbands and wives but I think there was a thing where people felt like she was, they were getting the same kind of performance from her.
2: Mm-hmm. Which is not necessarily unfair, but I think no, it really but, that performance but She's good works at that here. performance. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and I think she does, I think she's credible as a singer here. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I think her, her version of Rid of Me is persuasive. It's not well, bad. Well, she, she has
2: several albums uh, uh, with Juliet and the Licks, if you, wanna, oh, if you want to know more. Oh, of course. I <laughs> forgot Juliet about Juliet Lewis. and the
1: Licks. I, yeah. That uh, you probably find that in a go back in time, you know, 20 years and find it in a cutout bin somewhere, I guess.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the elements of this movie that you're required to buy into if, if you want to buy into the story is that she is basically a punk rock singer who will succeed no matter like what kind of gatekeeping gets in her way or no matter what kind of help she has or lacks, it doesn't matter because she's that good. And I think. They really sell the fantasy of that here. I mean, having music written by PJ Harvey does not hurt. The costuming, uh, which is just kind of eye-popping, doesn't hurt. The way Bigelow shoots her in just like a really intimate and sweaty and confrontational way doesn't hurt. The way she shoots the concert footage with you know people moshing and and thrashing and beating on each other in the background doesn't hurt. But the music is just really raw. And I think she does an excellent job of it. And those sequences are kind of protracted given how long the film is, but given how much of her you only see through uh, Ray Fine's character's eyes, like given the vision of her that he keeps trying to remember and sell to himself, and the vision of her that you see now is just kind of this angry figure who keeps pushing him away I think that one of the greatest things Bigelow does in this movie, and this kind of comes back to structure and how much I love the structure of this movie, is taking the time to make this character who could just be a fantasy object and and a barrier to the romance that that the film could sell if it wanted. She has a a character. She has her own ambitions. She has her own talent. She has her own arc. And in the same kind of way, Mace could so easily be a standard issue, like magical Black friend who only exists to help Nero out and and get him out of scrapes. But Bigelow takes the time to give her a backstory, to make us understand what she sees in this guy who's falling apart, to give her her own little arc of development, her own desires, and to make it very clear that as a Black woman, she has a community that's completely outside of Nero's experience and where he's not particularly welcome uh except for the fact that she she brings him in and kind of vets him i think that the the movie makes so much more attempt than so many modern movies uh, to give these side characters like agency and depth and reality in some really cleverly shorthanded ways
2: we should get into the to the racial politics of it a little because it is. Obvious, there's much of this is inspired by by the Rodney King beating and, and trial and subsequent riots. And I think one of the drier jokes of this is, you know, it's a dark joke, but is is that unrest is a constant in Los Angeles. It's kind of like the weather. Like some days it's worse than others, but it's always there. And one of the, you know, I alluded to this uh, when I was introducing the film, but, but one of the objections raised at the, at this junket and presumably elsewhere was it was an unfair depiction of L.A. And Bigelow's response was like, well, maybe the parts of L.A. that you live in, but, but not all of L.A. Yeah. There's some really parts mm-hmm. where, where there's a lot of inequality and unrest and, and unhappiness. And, you know, to see that spill over into, you know, downtown and other more familiar parts of, of Los Angeles, as it does here, I, it really does feel like the Next logical extrapolation from los angeles of the nineties and a pretty good predictor of 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 the unrest we'd experienced um you know over the last uh, five years or so five six really
0: yeah, it's really interesting to note the degree to which this movie was predicated on the Rodney King beating in part because what was different about that case was that it was caught. You know, that Mm -hmm. it was, that it was Mm -hmm. captured and that people could see it. And it it just kept being watched and rewatched and and spread around. And as people said at the time, it's not that this was an unusual occurrence, it's that it being clearly captured was an unusual occurrence. And we see that reflected in the film, but we see it reflected just over and over and over again in society, in in Eric Garner and Tamir Rice, in, in the fact that Sandra Bland's death wasn't captured on film and sort of what, what came of that. In Laquan McDonald in Chicago, uh, in just over and over and over as these things happen, the difference between something that's prosecuted and something that isn't is so often was it captured on video for, for other people to see. So, I mean, that's one of the elements here that feels both ahead of its time and exactly of its time, you know, that, that feels ahead of its time because its time just keeps recurring over and over in what seemed like endless cycles at this point.
1: I mean, it certainly saw that the next step was just simply death. Seeing death and and then even like experiencing it through this technology, which I guess is a, a whole nother level. But I mean, how could people not be made uncomfortable by that? I mean, that's certainly deliberate on Bigelow's part and probably off-putting to the junket people who thought it was a piece of shit. But here you have, um you know, reality, you know, and a prediction of where things were going, just crashing down on your head in a very visceral and unavoidable way. You know, in the context of a Hollywood film and. I mean that's like people moving into the neighborhood that you don't want to move in. In terms of like, you know that that's like the cinematic equivalent of that for for these junket people. I'm just like the, the, this movie is not showing me the things that movies should show me. It's not behaving the way movies are supposed to behave. It's crazy to me that this film is not that we, we have to talk about this film like we have to excavate it in order to talk about it because it's so. It saw so much coming, and it feels like such a missing piece of, of a movie. And obviously, Bigelow herself, her her fortunes would, would improve, you know, to the point where she would win Best Picture, you know? I mean, it's just a whole nother... It's crazy still that this film is so hard to find.
0: Yeah, and I'd love to know why that is. I mean, in our second segment today, we'll get into a bunch more lost movies. And as we were kind of looking into these, I just kept wondering over and over, like what is it with this one is it is it a question of rights is it a question of they're holding out for a particular kind of release is it a question of contractual conflicts is it is it a question of the music it's it's so often in some of these cases mm-hmm. has something to do with music rights like i think this
2: might be <sighs> A question of Cameron, though, and it was in particular because I mean it's why we don't have a Blu-ray of The Abyss. Um, although I think True Lies,
1: I mean, you can't. True Lies is just as unavailable as Strange Days.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, these are and those those were not. Uh, well, Abyss was wasn't a huge hit, but the True Lies was, and and, mm-hmm. and you know I, th- I think he's very particular about how films he's involved in get seen uh, uh to the detriment of you know people actually seeing them I, I feel like you know the abyss is is a is a major motion picture um you know a big part of film history and i think a film that's that would be eagerly be reclaimed by you know appreciative uh, audience to, to who rediscovered it but it's just not getting seen uh mm-hmm. as far as i as far as i can tell um true lies you know yeah you know, i always i need to revisit that but i, I, I didn't love that movie at the time but mm-hmm. uh uh, but, you know, it's certainly a, a formidable film that people would want to watch.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, and it's lo- so loaded. I mean, just thinking about some of the stuff that was in that movie playing to today's audience would be just a wild thing to experience because it is... I mean, problematic does not even get, <laughs> come close. Yeah, it, and even I, and even at the time, people recognized that it was like doing some pretty pretty shady stuff. Uh, but it, but I just would love to just have that opportunity, just to just kind of experience it. it and you know, and experiencing Strange Days, too, was like, man, this would just be still such a bomb to throw into the culture. That we, should, we need more of that stuff.
2: It also makes you wonder, though, if, if some of the stuff that – some of the voyeurism and, and True Lies – you know uh, is 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 there a level an element of critique to it, given that that you know it comes from the same probably some of the same brainstorming sessions that produce strange days in some ways, maybe not, maybe I'll give you too much credit,
0: yeah, who knows. I, before we get away from like we've we've talked about kind of the the big cultural import of Strange Days in terms of you know why it's why it's daring racially and and why it's daring sexually, but we haven't talked much about the science fiction of it, and that's just another element for me that makes this movie really stand out. Is Science fiction in film these days has a tendency to be just kind of, well, we've got to do this, either we've got to do this in space, or we've got to, as we were, you know, talking about so recently, we've got to make it like a miserable, dystopian, uh, unrecognizable crapsack world, or you've got to, it's got to be something like Her, you know, where everything is uh, a very polished Tomorrowland kind of like uh, high-tech shiny future. People have a lot of different ways of of looking at science fiction, but it's so rare that you see a movie like this that's just kind of the pure-hearted version of science fiction that's just, what if one thing changed technologically? What if one thing changed? What would all the implications of that be? How would it change Mm -hmm. people's lives? How wouldn't it change people's lives? How would people use it? What would the edge cases look like? And one of the things when I was talking about how much I love the structure of this movie that I was thinking of is just how effortlessly Cameron and Cox's script introduces this new idea into the world without heavy exposition, without like clumsy explanations, without, mm-hmm. as we both know, uh, kind of conversations and how easily and, and quickly you come to understand what this technology is, what it does, what it's for, how people are using it, how people are misusing it. I think it's just a fascinating. I, I think this should be studied in screenwriting classes.
1: I mean, you can see its legacy too. I mean, you, can, you know, this this idea, this is an extensive use of point of view. The way it's done is kind of a visceral way. I mean, is you can is evident in everything from video games to pornography. I mean, it's like it's you know it, it, that's this is kind of on the cutting edge of all of that stuff. You know, and I think the other thing about Strange Days is that it, it, it's not. You know, preserved in amber a little bit. Like there's something kind of like it's a near future. I mean, this is just this is just a few years. It's set just a few years ahead of the, the present, and so there's an urgency to it, and obviously an emphasis on visceral experience. That it makes it a little different from some of the other science fiction we experience, which is often quite far in the future. And 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 where certain issues are settled, this is unsettled. This feels like. You know, something like the Rodney King tape cracked open, you know, some Pandora's box. And now this movie is about following through on that and what kind of, what has it unleashed and where could that lead us in a few years? That's a much different proposition th- than uh, science fiction that's maybe set a little bit further in the future. And it's, it's, it would have been hilarious to kind of contrast it with reminiscence, which has got, such a slow pulse compared to it's so stylized and kind of like referential. It doesn't have anything near the kind of like pop that this movie has.
0: I will say one, one problem with revisiting strange days was it made me respect reminiscence a lot less uh-huh. because I had seen the big parallels and we talked about some of them just like in its structure, in its relationships, in its character dynamics, in its character types, in just the overall form of the plot. But rewatching Strange Days, I find myself just saying like clockwork. Oh, *Reminiscence* stole that too. Oh, okay. That also turned up in *Reminiscence*. There were, there were a lot of just micro things like the idea of eliminating somebody by burning in an idea into the brain with a, the new technology, by just making them re-experience the same thing over and over. Uh, mm-hmm. Just just a lot of little things like that. I did not realize how much reminiscence it stole.
1: I mean, other movies had paved the way before, To Altered States is a big one. A Brainstorm, as we talked about, was a big one. Um, I mean, there is there, there are movies that kind of did suggest... A technology that would allow um, you to have someone else's experience, some sort of visceral experience. Um, This would just kind of work somewhere else with it.
0: But in terms of uh, having a man who has recordings of his relationship with a woman who's gone, who says she doesn't want to see him anymore because mm-hmm. she's off with a criminal who's uh, taken over her life, who she, the the man is trying to win her back from, but she says she doesn't want to come back because she's actually secretly trying to undermine him for like a good cause, just like on and on and on like that. It's It's a lot.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, this movie doesn't underdo anything.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we could probably keep going, uh, but we need to move on. I mean, the point here, though, we're going to use Strange Days as an example of how, you know, what happens when a film becomes more or less unavailable uh, and what's lost. I I think this conversation shows that this is a film that should be seen and talked about it. And we'll talk about some other films that match that description after the break. (music) We talked about Strange Day's near-complete unavailability, but in this, it's not alone. Each new development in film history has brought with it loss. Even leaving out the tremendous loss of films made in the silent era and sometimes in the decades that followed, not every film ever made for theaters made it to television – Not every film that made it aired on television turned up on VHS, not every VHS film received a DVD release, and so on. Years ago at the AV Club, our friend Sam Adams wrote a piece called The Convenience Trap, whose central thesis went something like this. A streaming service like Netflix offers a lot of choices, but far from everything – But it's there, and it's easy, so why not just watch something on Netflix instead of going to the trouble of seeking something out? Since then, streaming services have piled up and up and up, Uh, but the central issue remains. Even with a dizzying array of choices on streaming... There's a lot you can't see. We're going to guess that our audience, much like ourselves, doesn't rely on streaming services entirely and has held on to and continues to seek out physical media. Uh, But this has its own issues. Disks go out of print. Titles never make it to the format in the first place or remain available only in SD, non-anamorphic transfers, and with snap cases from the earliest days of DVD. When I put out a call on Twitter for titles that you can't find on Blu-ray or DVD and titles so hard to find they might as well never have existed, I received hundreds of titles. Here's a handful, and I'll compile others for a future newsletter. Oni Mahoney, Little Murders, Mediterraneo, The Young Poisoner's Handbook, Barfly, Killer of Sheep, Happiness, American Movie, a favorite of ours, The Heartbreak Kid, and that's to say nothing about films from across the globe, titles from the golden age of Hong Kong filmmaking alone would fill an episode. So let's talk this over. What is your strategy for making sure you have access to films? What does the future look like? And this has all been a bit negative about streaming, but are we being unfair? Are there advantages to the streaming era? Let's talk it over. This list goes on, and I sent a link to everyone at a list to the Alt Weekly and a Seattle Stranger keeps a not as frequently updated as it ought to be uh, list of, of unstreamable films. Um, mm-hmm. uh, my friend Mike Ryan at Up Rocks, wrote uh, an article the uh, earlier this year about he he wanted to watch the movie Cocoon, you know not not an obscure film, but a film that was a hit and no. and like
1: there was a he, Cocoon too.
2: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's not streaming anywhere. There was a Blu-ray, but it's been out of print for years. He so would have to pay $100 for it. He ultimately paid $25 to watch it on, on, on DVD. And <laughs> like, it, it shouldn't be that hard to watch Cocoon, you know? Uh, so I don't know. Big question, I guess. What does everyone think about the current state of things? And, 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 you know, what is your strategy for making sure you have movies? You can watch the movies you want to watch.
1: I mean, that's a massive, massive, massive question that I, <laughs> I, that, that I think about virtually every day. Yeah. What do I think about the state of things? You know, I tend to complain most of the time. That's kind of what <laughs> I do. But I would say that Sam's piece is just like Kreskin-like and understanding what was happening and what was coming. There's very little in that piece that does not hold up today, which is very hard for a piece like that to be. But, but I think the mode of thinking is what's important here. The idea that rather than actively doing what you did in the past and actively going to a video store, looking around and selecting things that way, or, or maybe flipping through a reference book and trying to, trying to see the, something by a filmmaker or whatever actor that you hadn't seen before you subscribe to a service or a number of services. And that is the world in which you are, you operate. And it seems like the titles that are available to you are endless because that's the way the internet <laughs> works, but like the but um, the way I always think of it is like if Netflix existed as a video store, it'd go out of business, right? there would be so much unavailable. So, but it has, but it still changes your thinking, and you get into what Sam describes as that convenience trap of just looking for things that are available to you to watch, and and of course that leaves a bunch of other things in the dark, and 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 when you actually do train your brain to sort of like when you actually do think well maybe i want to see something else by this filmmaker and you go see and you try to actually seek it out sometimes you're absolutely shocked to find you can't find it anywhere like cocoon is maybe an example i mean i, I think of whole filmmakers that were absolutely relevant and important uh who have all, never get talked about because you can't find their films anywhere i think about like early zhang Yimao. yeah but he was a sensation when i was in college sensation uh, Hal Hartley was that way too. You know, just Adam
2: pe- McGowan, a lot of his films. Ag- yeah, right.
1: early, right, exactly. Early Adam, like Ag- Ag- you, you want to watch these,
2: the the adjuster was my inter- introduction to, to Adam Mcgoyan, and, and you know, try try seeing that film these days. Very
1: hard. Yeah, and so 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 the, so the it's, it's as if they don't exist is what I'm saying here.
2: I don't want to romanticize the video store era too much because you know this assumes that you everyone has access to a really good video store which you know part of why i i think part of why i moved to madison wisconsin was like i fell in love with uh, the four-star video heaven so like oh that's a good place to go to grad school i could go rent movies there (laughs) eventually ended ended up working there but um you know it it, but it ended of course the the trouble of going and renting and movies are checked out i mean it was not a perfect system but i Mm -hmm. felt like you know With a good store, you weren't as reliant on, you know, the, 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 the vagaries of, of people, you know, companies streaming habits or what, whatever. I mean, there, I guess the other thing with streaming is, yeah, you know, you, you would never run out of things to watch, but it changes the way you seek things out.
0: I just really miss the the early days of Netflix as a DVD shipping service Yeah, when it seemed like they had one copy of everything and mm-hmm. you might have to wait like two months to get a specific title that you'd asked for, but getting onto that, that Netflix thing and being able to curate a list for yourself of like 300 films, uh, that were very often on the, the pretty darn obscure side. And, you know, back in those days you had a choice of, you know, you could, like go to your video store and tell them that you wanted it and have them maybe order it for you or have a bookstore order it for you and pay $30 to see this obscurish film once. Or you could just tell Netflix, like, hey, send me that and they'd send it mm-hmm. to you, and you'd watch it and send it back. And the process by which like Netflix DVD service slowly started disintegrating as it became clearer and clearer like even before the the ridiculous quickster announcement and uh, the the attempt to dissociate themselves from the the DVD section like mm-hmm. long before that it was clear that they'd stopped supporting it and just one by one you could see titles dropping off and as we hear more and more about the kind of the alarming state of digital storage from movies, how many movies only exist in digital form now and how much digital systems break down over time or uh, are not renewed when a new uh, digital system comes along. We're used to thinking uh, like, oh, it's in the cloud. It's safe forever. But. You know, roughly every five years we come up with a new storage medium and everything on all the old storage mediums is lost. You know, think about like what you used to own on floppy disks and what you used to own Mm on 3.5 disks and what you used to own on zip drives and what you used to own on jazz drives and just on and on and on and on and on. Yeah. All of the different things that have been lost and in the same sort of way, the loss of like that particular system of sure, you can watch anything you know, given a week of turnaround between sending the old thing back and and getting the new thing in. And you can also just like hang out on the Netflix site and kind of mentally shop for like every classic that you've never seen, every foreign film that you've never seen. All of these things. When we started looking around for uh, films that were just completely unavailable, it's such a random selection of things that have fallen through the cracks. I can't help but wonder if I had sat down and tried to like systematically find classic fifties noir movies. I'm betting I would have found a lot more holes than I actually did. Uh, Just kind of like thinking about filmmakers that I loved and and seeing where their stuff was or thinking about movies that I'd loved that, uh, you know, definitely haven't made the jump to classic or cult classic and checking to see where, where they were. I found fewer holes than I was expecting. Hmm. You know, there is an awful lot out there that isn't just, you know, the new stuff that streaming services are making. And I cannot feel too bad about kind of the state of things right at this moment, you know, when there are seemingly hundreds of thousands of things that you can watch. You just get that feeling, you know, from time to time when there's there's something that you really do want to watch and it's just completely unavailable and nobody seems to care except you. That's the hard feeling of it. I put up a review of Strange Days on Letterboxd and just was immediately hit with a a small handful of people who were just very exercised. Like, we remember this film. We love this film. Why can't we have this film? And I think when there's a movie that you love and it's not available, you get both the feeling that nobody's listening to you and that nobody understands what the value of this thing is, like like nobody cares, and and that just in and of itself can be a very lonely feeling.
1: Yeah, I mean, you said quite a bit. I mean, that's the thing about this issue It's like so expansive. I mean, you could go take it in so many different directions, which is like I said when at the opening, it's like I think about this stuff practically every day. <laughs> uh, you know, about how the, how dramatically the landscape has changed and what my feelings about that are because. You know, I can look at something like the Criterion Channel and think like, this is, I could have never dreamed of something this incredible happening. Like just this, being able to pay X amount of money a month, a reasonable amount of money money a month, and and be able to see some of the greatest films of all, of all time and constantly refreshing with, with other great films, some of which are, are very hard to find. But then there are other times where it's just like, really, I can't see like, Early, I can't see like early Zhang Yimao, I can't see like, you know, Hal Hartley's films, I can't see, I can't see the Heartbreak Kid, you know, I mean, it, you know, it, it, this Elaine May film that, that's so important, I mean, Charles Grodin dies, this is one of his major works.
2: His best performance, or that, or Midnight Run, or, or you know, sure. it's
1: certainly in the conversation. Oh, absolutely, and, and, you know, and this happens to be a lot. When in just my job, when I when I write for the Times, they often have me write these kind of pre obituary lists. You know, people who are may die within the next however many years have kind of a recommendation for streaming lists ready to go. And and very often, uh, uh, you know, almost in every case, there'll be several important titles that I want to include uh, that are not available at all for people to watch. And and it's very hard to get to that mindset. It's it's hard to for people to understand. That there is so much that's unavailable because what is available is just pushed up in their eyeballs. They can get it right however they want. They don't have to do order it through the mail, through net, even Netflix through the mail like like you know, which was truly an extraordinary amount of titles available. It's like they could just turn on their TV and open up an app, and they have more titles than they know what to do with. And so it seems there's the there's the illusion of abundance that kind of ends up casting a shadow over, over kind of the hidden films that you can't see, you know, and um, you know, it's tough, but at the same time, you know, I mean, yeah, these are to see films in high quality, you know, streaming on your TV, presented in the right format most of the time. I mean, that's 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 living the dream to some extent too. So it's a, it's a complicated matter.
2: Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of wonders in, in the streaming era. And, and like you just setting criterion alone, you know, you don't want to underestimate that. But at the same time, there, there is, you know, I don't know. I, I, I keep a physical media library. Uh, I, I think both of you do too. And, and I don't just keep it. I add to it. Like, you know, this whole conversation <laughs> sent me to eBay scouring for, for a few titles I've, I've been wanting to to, to watch that, that I don't suspect will ever be on streaming you know, I just was recently, I've been thinking about Hong Kong movies, you know, I brought it up Mm -hmm. earlier, but, but I mean, so much of that is just, there's, there's things that are available that you wouldn't expect, but, but there's, there's a whole, you know, the the stuff wasn't always the easiest thing to find in, in the, in the States, but you know,
1: it's a lot of, it's just impossible. It's it's just, it doesn't exist. When I worked at a video store, Hong Kong action film was kind of, films were on the rise um yeah so this would have been in the mid to late 90s and and um we would get them in by the box full vhs's i mean vhs is unmatched in terms of available are, are you talking about Tai Sing entertainment maybe i mean it was it was just boxes of stuff i mean and so I, yeah. I and i was watching all the god of gamblers movies and just like heroic trio <laughs> and every possible thing that i could get my hands on and those are the big titles i mean they're there are plenty of like th- things that are more obscure than that that were also available, and um, now it's like, yeah, that that's just a memory. <laughs> that's just a, and that's that, and it should be a vivid memory because you know you can't talk about action cinema the way it's made today without the influence of Hong Kong. I mean, the stylization that we're seeing routinely in movies in, you know, the fast and the furious movies or any kind of popular action movie crib from the, the renaissance of Hong Kong movies of a certain era of the, of the late eighties and the early nineties. But that piece of film history kind of goes missing. It's so, I guess you just hope that repertory people could kind of reconstruct it or you can, you know, you can get these little like, Cults of torrent people who can kind of track this stuff down, but um, in terms of a larger cultural discussion, uh, these films might not might, uh, may as well not even exist.
0: YouTube, too, of all things, there is a an entire just kind of little convention of people dumping um, out of print and unavailable films to to YouTube, sometimes in extremely high def. Um, mm. Somebody recently actually put up a, I, I think they said it was 4K, uh, version of the 1970s Raggedy Ann and Andy animated movie.
2: Oh, wow. I saw that in the theater when I was a kid.
0: I don't know if I saw it in a theater. I definitely saw it when I was a little kid. And that movie is mind melting. It is... Just so, it's on a different planet from, uh, what we think of as, as animated kids fair today. And somebody put it up on YouTube because it's not available, uh, legally and, and otherwise. There's just a community of of people just kind of trying to salvage these films and make sure that they're available to the public. There's a ton of publicly available films um, on YouTube, like older stuff from the the 30s and 40s and 50s. And then on top of that, you just have all of these cinephile houses, uh, draft house films, mm-hmm. music box, uh, facets here in Chicago, oscilloscope, criterion, obviously. That are are doing their best to like slowly resurrect and remaster uh, a lot of these lost films, and on top of everything else, like as you're feeling concerned for some of these lost movies, I would just keep in mind that everything's in constant churn. Hmm. I looked through, I I looked at this list on uh, The Stranger. I ran across it independently, and running down it, I kind of had a moment of. You know, if if nine months or white man's burden or even cowgirls get the blues or meet the Applegates, like if these movies are not easily and uh, cheaply available for streaming rental. I don't know that I care, but I looked it up a handful of the movies that I did really care about that are on this list, and even in the time since this list was was posted, uh, since it was last updated, half a dozen of them are now available on streaming in some format or the other. So you know, you may have to go a little further afield for some of these things, or you may have to to wait six months or a year. For quite a while, Brewster McLeod was kind of my white whale. It wasn't mm. available in in any format whatsoever. Uh, and now it's, it's widely available for a long time. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Um, I was really despairing over the, uh, the Corita film afterlife, Mm -hmm. another one of my all time favorite films, just not being available in, in any format and criterion picked it up and it's coming to the criterion channel in October. So a lot of these, these things that we think of as gaps, I, I did say earlier that it can be very lonely to love a movie that that isn't available because it makes it feel like you're the only one that loves that movie. But there are a lot of cinephiles out there that seem to be actively working to make some of these things available. And if, as you say, it's great or it's historically important, if the rights are available, if if you know Catherine Bigelow isn't deliberately suppressing the rights to strange days because she thinks it's a, an embarrassment in her career, which I, s- I certainly hope she does not think that. But if there isn't some reason like that, that it's being withheld, it'll presumably turn up again eventually.
2: But it, it, when something happens like the Fosse-Verdon miniseries airs and then no one can see all that jazz except for an out-of-print blu-ray it, it does it does seem to a problem that you know with with availability I, I i don't know what the solution you know i don't i don't know what the solution is other than i my advice is to hold on to physical media if you have it <laughs> uh and acquire it uh you know when when if there's something you really want uh you know keep it close, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 call-
1: I mean, make making sure it's yours too. I mean, I think that's a, that's a whole nother issue too, about control over these, over this product, I guess, like, like, uh, you know, because one of the, one of the ways in which people can and always have been able to, to view films that haven't been available is, is through repertory houses. Well, Repertory houses are are complaining quite extensively about the fact that you know archives are not being made available to them yeah. anymore, and and so and so if you if you do want to if you do have curators out there who who know about these films and, and can see that say Stranger Days is a really important missing piece to understanding you know the cinema of today or understanding Catherine Bigelow's career, they may not just they may. They may ask for it and be turned down because they, because the, the that is the the, the state of things um, as far as uh, film archives go as well. So it's it's a problem and it's ever shifting. And then of course you know as the, as Tasha was saying, I mean about digital, I mean that we could be looking at so much lost cinema from like the from from the last twenty plus years of just you know films that were made digitally that that have no. I mean, film is still the best way of preserving a movie and if and if uh if, if film and you know, so many of these digital films of course were never transferred to a to a print those could just go away i mean those are one those are could be like an update <laughs> a software update away from oblivion
2: yeah our friend Matthew Desham did a piece for the Dissolve about about how the, the illusion of digital being a a flawless pre- preservation medium, and citing citing the problems that you just 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 named, I don't know that those problems have gotten better. or I don't know if they've gotten worse since then either. But um, but it, it, there is sort of the sense that the digital is forever when it's when it's really not. And I, I think also there is you know we keep coming back to these films from the '90s, and it does feel like there's this kind of this dead zone like the mid-90s are particularly bad because... Uh, it was pre DVD and 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 uh, you know it never really made the the never quite made the journey and and in, in some ways to DVD and streaming. A lot of independent films from the nineties are kind of fall into that category. Oh, most
1: definitely. I mean, films that would w- one Sundance. You know. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I, mean, I mean, I mean, I'm just gonna just off the top of my head. I mean, is can you find just another girl in the IRT on streaming? Um,
2: you know, I'll look for it while you keep talking.
1: Okay. Uh, just, I mean, literally off the top of my head, but there's like, I'm sure. Um, I'm, I'm guessing probably not. I mean, it'd be funny to do just a, like a search for all of the Sundance competition films for a particular year in the nineties, like late nineties and see how many of them you can actually see. I think it would be a, a very small fraction. Uh, I mean, that might
0: be true for uh, even more recent Sundance. Yeah, no, it's
1: not, not the best example. There's a lot of, you know, you look at can film, uh, film festivals of the past where you're dealing with ostensibly be the greatest filmmakers in the world. And, and there are plenty of those titles where you're like, what? <laughs>
2: okay, uh, just another girl on the IOT was not the best example because it is widely
1: streaming, including oh, a crit- Criterion dang. at the moment. But are you but, uh, but but
2: it's the kind of film that you have to think about at least. You know, well that's the
1: other thing too. Of just do we have it? Are have we trained ourselves out of thinking about these films mm. if they are not right in front of us? Again, that, that, that what Sam the, the title of Sam's piece is the convenience trap. If we are not, if we are trained to think about. What is available to us right which is what is right in front of us do we stop searching for that which is which is not av- available to us quite as easily
2: yeah it's, it's hard enough keeping old films in the conversation uh, when they're unavailable older films then then you know do, like as we keep coming back to do they even exist
0: yeah. Well, speaking of things that don't even exist, I am sort of curious. One thing that we haven't really touched on here is movies that are deliberately made unavailable. I mean, I'm I'm throwing out uh, Strange Days as, as an example for any number of reasons, ranging from uh, Catherine Bigelow might think because of the reception that it was an embarrassment or there might be music rights issues or Cameron might be holding out for a, a restoration that he doesn't have time for because he's making 400 Avatar movies that we might never see. We don't, we don't know exactly what the details are there. But what about movies like Song of the South, which, mm-hmm. y- you know, you can definitely argue different sides of that in terms of, yeah, maybe this is a movie that we don't necessarily need in the cultural consciousness given the pretty execrable, uh, presentation of, of slavery and of black life that it presents. And then you can argue, you know, it's it's a history, it's an element of history, it's an important element of history as a, a Disney movie. You can also argue that the animated segments are really fun, as steeped in, you know, stereotypes as they are. There's just, there's a lot of different ways of looking at that. But uh, how do you feel about movies that are, are deliberately made scarce for whatever reason?
2: Well, Son of the houses is like the most radioactive example you
0: can yeah, choose. Yeah, I,
2: but I'm trying to think I'm trying to think of another one that that that, that we that would be a little a little less uh
1: That yeah. one feels like anomalous to me. And in fact I, I wrote about it for Guardian about about and, and kind of fell down on the side of maybe this should not be available. Maybe it should be something that or if it's available that it needs to be there needs to be a lot of restriction to it because there's you know there's just something about this a Disney animated film. Where you have a character who is fond, reflecting fondly on the good old days, you know when he would have been a slave. It's a hard thing to, you know, it, it, that film is. I mean, I, I remember watching it at home, and you know, shielding the kids from, <laughs> from from seeing it. I mean, it's so shocking. I think a movie to watch, and and I and normally my my, my normally uh, my instinct normally is to go completely the other direction of just like make everything available. Let the cards fall as they may. There's just such a special case, I think, Song of the South.
0: It is and it isn't. I mean, uh, it is as a, a Disney movie that has attractive elements. It it might count as uh, the, the legal definition of an attractive nuisance, where just having something that's so so bright and appealing in some ways... And, uh, you know, the, the songs are memorable. Like there are all of these elements that draw you in. And with the, the cheerful upbeat, uh, interesting elements, you're inhaling like toxic, uh, old school racism. So yeah, it's an outlier, but. At the same time, if we're you know removing stuff from from the registry of things that people are allowed to see because mm-hmm. of its its noxious ideas, how many other films should we put on that list?
1: Yeah, no, I know, I, I know. There's a, that slope gets pretty slippery. <laughs> I, I
2: feel I feel like the old Sarah Live sketch about the PM the P- Parents Resource M- Music Council, where it's it's you know, Frank Zappa is, is making a passionate argument against censorship when they're really just trying to ban the music of Satan as played by John Love, it's like, no, no, just his music. I feel like the song of the <laughs> South is kind of the equivalent of that in right. some ways, but this is a whole other podcast. Issue. It, really, like, it really is
1: like this, this discussion topic. I knew it would just be like the most massive can of worms possible because I don't think we've been. <sighs> You know, it's such a shock to the system the way things have changed. I mean, it's almost like talking about the internet or something. Like, it's such a, you know, the way we watch, we, we consume movies, we the, we the availability of movies, the way they're available to us, the way we talk about them, the way that we, your reviews get written. or It's just like, there's no, nothing is what it was. And it's so, and it's like, it's still a shock to the system. It's still something that leaves you reeling. It still feels like it's changing every day. This is a massive can of worms
2: <laughs> yeah and I, I think if you know we're winding down a little bit but I, I think the main point I want to make is in the current system there's tons of stuff available but if you don't want if you want to watch something else it's it's like going spelunking and I think we and, and most I'm sure most of our listeners here we're, we're spelunkers by nature mm-hmm. but because it's difficult for for others, they do really just kind of fall by the wayside. Like, you know, what, what, is, what is Barfly? What is the movie Barfly in 2021? It's an, it's an unmovie. And, it, and, you know, it's something that I'm sure people would find interesting and want to talk about. I'm just choosing that example at random. I mean, there's always been movies that become hard, hard to find, but it, it's, it's, it seems like there's sort of these these self-inflicted uh, wounds uh, uh, to, to the culture in, in terms of how things are, are dealt with now.
0: But I mean, at the same time, like every era has, like, I think about the, the B movies of the fifties, like how quickly they were churned out, how mm-hmm. quickly they were disposed of, how many of them were, were never preserved. Every era has its kind of pop ephemera, even if we didn't call it that back then, mm-hmm. uh, that wasn't preserved. You know, you, you look at the books that we have from a hundred years ago and think about, you know all of the the stuff that was being put out that we just have at this point no idea about let alone from longer ago like every era until now has just shed stuff that that didn't rise either rise to the level of classic for some reason or just got kind of get codified in the culture regardless of quality and uh, the the idea that we might forget some things and some things might no longer be available to us has only become become an obsession in recent years when we face the possibility you know the the Patton Oswald promised possibility of everything being available to us forever the the idea that we should have infinite access to everything that's ever existed and that we feel balked if we don't does strike me as an argument coming from a, a particular place of societal privilege. Mm. And, you know, in the end, like one of the things that doing this research taught me is, you know, yeah, there are a handful of things that I can't have and that that might make me itchy because I, I might never get to see that film. But an awful lot of things that are favorites of mine that are obscure and Problematic in some ways, uh, you know, your your ambitious failures that don't know what they want to be, uh, kind of movies that that I love uh, are a lot more available than I would have thought, and an awful lot of of classics that seem to have n- no necessarily like popular value in terms of. Are, you know, are people going to want to rush to see this? Are available on, on Canopy, you know, are available through library systems, through, or through preservation efforts, or through preservationists just doing their best to, to keep these things out there. There are a lot of forces working against us losing things, I think more than, than ever before and on a wider scale than ever before. And, there is just more access to, to the things that are available, you know. Not very many uh, years ago, like easily within our lifetimes, if a movie lost popularity and uh, and wasn't widely available, you had to know somebody who owned it, you know, on 16mm on if you wanted to rewatch it. And a preserved copy of something would be available to an incredibly small group of people. Now you can put that film, you can digitize that film and put it on YouTube and make it available to the world. So, like, I understand the, the alarmism about I love this film and I can't find it and maybe nobody cares and maybe I never will be able to see it again. But, I mean, if you look at the positives here, we're, we're definitely coming down on the side of the positives.
2: Well, uh, yeah, but I think that makes it... You know, all the more important people in our position to champion films, we'd like to see resurface in a more widely available format or or draw attention, you know, have more attention drawn to them. I, I think that's kind of on us to to do that
1: yeah i mean it just feels like whole careers kind of disappear i mean you, i just look at these lists i mean the first Oni mahoney love and death on long island was the same director like so yeah. he might as well not exist those are both john hurt movies maybe two of his most important performances that people are not going to get a chance to see Oni mahoney is maybe is you know kind of a loss ends up being kind of a lost philip seymour hoffman role like at one of the a rare lead performance extraordinary people are not going to see that so so they're they're these kind of gaps and then there are these filmmakers who you know almost all of their work is not available and so how can how can they assert themselves as important parts of the conversation again or how can how can they be asserted as important parts of the conversation when they meant so much at a certain time and should mean a lot now and don't because you just can't see their work (laughs)
0: sounds like a job for somebody who uh, is the editor-in-chief of a blog dedicated to specialized cinema and cinephiles
1: yeah that's true
0: (laughs) do we know anybody like that
2: well fortunately this podcast will never disappear and will be preserved and and, and revered (laughs) and studied studied forever Um, we'll probably return to this topic I'm assuming we're going to get some some feedback about it uh, and we look forward to that and we will uh, come back to wrap things up for this episode after the break And that about does it for this installment of The Next Picture Show. We'll be back to our regular format next time when we pair two films about gambling and surrogate fathers, Paul Thomas Anderson's Hard Eight and Paul Schrader's The Card Counter. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net and via Twitter at, at nextpicturepod. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcast already, please consider it. And also, please consider rating and reviewing us, which will help others find your favorite movie podcast. Uh, before we go, where can we find everybody? Scott, how about you? Where can we find you?
1: Oh, jeez. Where can you find me? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at scott underscore Tobias, you can find my work in the New York Times, uh, The Guardian, Vulture, and other fine publications. And I am the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscopes Musings blog. Tasha?
0: I am the film and TV editor of Polygon.com. You can find my work there, and you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Keith?
2: And I am a freelance writer. I contribute to places like GQ, The Ringer, TV Guide, Vulture. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at kFIps 3000 where I update what I'm up to pretty regularly. Our absent co-hosts, Genevieve Kosky is the senior TV editor at Vulture. You can find her on Twitter once in a while at, at Genevieve Kosky. Uh, thanks to Dan, the Baked Chicks for assistance producing the podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting Family podcast. Please tune in next time.